Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Horatius Bonner once wrote, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. One of the most perplexing issues that for many people in the world around us is the nature of the relationship of grace and sin to the follower of Christ. I think the truth that we can agree on is that sin is destructive, that sin is devastating, and it comes always at a huge cost. And we ought to seek to put sin to death in our lives. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it be killing you. But on the other hand, we know that we are saved by grace through faith and not obedience to the law. As the Apostle Paul has just communicated in a previous section, that grace is greater than our sin. In fact, Paul said, sin increased, but grace abounded all the more. And because of that, believers can have confidence that all of their sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. But then how can this be? How, can, how is it that the Bible can teach us to kill sin and walk in obedience while at the same time we're told our efforts to rid ourselves of sin is not the basis of our salvation, but rather simply trusting in what Christ has done? Not to mention, further on in chapter 6, what we'll see is Paul will remind us that we are not under the law, but we're under grace. So what is the nature of this relationship? Are we under grace to the point that it doesn't matter what we do? Do we have a license to sin anytime we want to as long as we have made a profession of faith at some point in our life? Or is obedience to the law required in some fashion? Are we required to keep God's command in order to be right with Him? Well, it seems a huge part of the Christian world is divided right along these lines. There are some people who would say, yes, we are under grace, and so it doesn't matter, right? In fact, there are people who believe and promote the idea, what is known as carnal Christianity, a doctrine that was developed in the 20th century at Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and this is the idea that after you hear the gospel, that you can make a decision for Christ and come forward and make a profession of faith. And by so doing, you are saved, even if you continue to walk in unrepentance in all of the rest of your life. Even if your life never changes, even if you don't stay connected to the body of Christ and you live like the rest of the world, you are saved, but you're just a carnal Christian. The idea that you can be born again, but that you can also still live in your flesh. That's why they are called carnal Christians. Well, on the other hand, a person who comes to faith in Christ, who then lives for Christ, and who walks in obedience, they are spiritual Christians. Now, supposedly, they're no more saved than carnal Christians. They just are more mature, and they enjoy more of the benefits of a relationship with Christ in this life. And, and, whether you call, and whenever you call someone out in their sin, typically the response is, whoa, buddy. <laughs> We're under grace and not the law, right? I mean, don't you know he's a carnal Christian? He made a profession of faith when he was like eight years old. Right? Who are you to judge? This, by the way, is one of the most dominant views in American evangelicalism today. 
But is this really what the Scriptures teach us? Now, on the other hand, there are others who would say that a person who is in Christ cannot sin. That it's impossible for a true Christian to sin. And they will use 1 John 3, 6 as a proof text to support their perspective, which reads, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. They will say that Christians either cannot sin or they have the ability to lose their salvation if they do sin. And from this perspective are those who adopt some form of legalism, demanding that faith in Christ must be accompanied by some obedience to a set of rules. I think we've all, I think in our Christian lives, have experienced those, those kinds of people, those kinds of churches. Right? You know, you need to dress a certain way. You need to act a certain way. You need to separate yourself from the world. You can't go to the movies. You can't listen to certain kinds of music. Otherwise, then you're just not a Christian. You're not saved if you don't follow a certain set of rules. Another perspective that comes from this is what is known as moral perfectionism. There are some who believe that since they, are, they have made a profession of faith in Christ, that they actually no longer sin. They believe that they do not have the ability to sin. They sincerely believe that they're incapable of sinning. I've actually talked to a few of them. But again, is legalism and moral perfectionism prescribed in the Scriptures? So what is this relationship between sin and grace and the believer? Now, the reason why I bring this up is because not only is this an issue that many people wrestle with, it's vitally important as an issue of orthodoxy. Because the truth is a person who confesses that Christ, you know, who, because a person who confesses Christ, but then continually walks and lives in unrepentant sin, that person likely, possibly, is a false believer who is self-deceived. Well, on the other hand, the legalist and the moral perfectionist end up preaching a gospel that can't save and themselves may in fact not actually be of the faith. And so this actually is a very important issue. If we come to faith in Christ, how is it that we are saved by grace and grace abounds while at the same time we are called to walk in obedience to God's commands, bearing the fruit of repentance? Well, that's the issue that we will actually encounter today in the text. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And Paul begins with a question. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, what we need to keep in mind is that Romans is a letter written for a specific theological purpose. And because of that, we need to understand that sections like this are not standalone passages of Scripture. They are connected to a larger whole. In fact, as we continue through Romans, we find that Paul's thoughts are actually going somewhere. He's building his ideas to make a larger point. And so there is a flow of thought that we need to keep in mind and remind ourselves of. And that begins with the purpose of the letter. If you remember, Paul wrote this letter to build a relationship with the church in Rome so that he could use Rome as a base of operation because his desire was to go further west into Europe to spread the gospel. But he also wrote the letter to address the tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. If you remember, there was a, a history there. It was started as a Jewish church, but then the Jews were cast out of Rome. And when the Jews were allowed back in, the church there was then dominated by Gentiles. And there are some cultural tensions there. And Paul wanted to help to resolve that. But Paul's primary reason to write the letter was he wanted to fully unpack for the Roman church the most important truth in the Christian faith the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That's his main point. And Paul sets out to clearly explain what the gospel is and how then we are to live in light of the truth of the gospel, right? And Paul, in chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 4, explains to us what the gospel is. It is the bad news of our condition, that we are all sinners before a holy and just and righteous God, rightfully under His wrath and condemnation but that it's also the good news of what Christ has done for us so that we can be reconciled to God 
and be justified, not by what we do, but by faith. All of that is summarized actually in Romans chapter 3. Right? He says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's the good news. And so in Romans chapter 1-4, through 4, Paul explains that what the gospel is. And then in Romans 5 verses 1-11, through Paul begins to explain the glorious blessings that are bestowed upon the believer for their faith, which includes peace with God, where once we were God's enemies, we're at peace with Him. We also have access to God and His presence and His grace. We also have reconciliation with God. We're not just former enemies with a, a, a peace treaty. We are reconciled as His family. We also have the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and we have the assurance of our hope and the assurance of God's love for us, and that Christ's love proves God's love for us. And then beginning in Romans 12 to the end of the chapter, Paul explains how the gospel works. He explains how it is that all people are universally sinners in rebellion to God, and how it is that we can be redeemed, not by our own efforts, but by faith in Christ and His finished work. And the answer to these questions, as we talked about, is federal headship. Adam, the first human being, was our covenant representative before God. And not only he not only represented himself in his actions, he represented the entire human race. If you remember, God made a covenant with Adam and said that if you obey, you will live and be righteous and have dominion over all the earth. But if he disobeyed, he would be unrighteous and die, and then we'd be cursed. Well, as we know, Adam willfully disobeyed, bringing sin and death into the entire world. And that affected not only Adam, but all of humanity, including all of us. Adam is our federal or our covenantal head. He is our representative before God. And when Adam fell, we fell in him. When he became guilty, we became guilty and corrupted just like him. Just as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith explains. It says, by God's appointment, they were the root, they, Adam and Eve, were the root and the representative of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants, their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath and the servants of sin and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus Christ sets them free. Adam is our covenant representative with God in the covenant of works, which he failed to keep. And so we are corrupted by that first sin. But then Christ... The second Adam succeeded where Adam failed. He fulfilled the covenant of works and he kept the law that no man could keep, thereby earning a righteous standing before God. And when he died, right, for our sins, his poured out blood inaugurated the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And by faith in Christ, We are brought into this covenant, and Jesus now is our new representative, our new federal head before God. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. That's how the gospel works. And and right at the end of chapter 5, Paul explains the grace of God under the new covenant is greater than all sin. And he says, now that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. And that statement leads directly to this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, what? so now that Paul has explained what the gospel is and the blessings that the gospel gives and how the gospel works, he takes a moment to address an important objection that many Jews had to the gospel. And that is, if we're saved by grace alone, apart from works of the law, 
And if grace is greater than sin, then why not go on living in sin so that God's grace would be even more visible in the world? That's the essence of the question. And this actually parallels an objection Paul dealt with in Romans chapter 3 where he writes, and why not do evil that good may come? In other words, if God can bring good out of evil, then why not do evil so that more good will come? And if grace abounds and blesses God's people as sin abounds, then why not keep sinning so there's more grace that abounds? You see, at the heart of this objection is the human response to grace and sin. We struggle to reconcile the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from obedience to the law, while at the same time we are called as God's people to walk in holiness. We struggle to reconcile those two together. And the Jews especially struggle because because their whole life was defined by the law. Their whole existence was the law. They believed that if they were to be righteous before God, they had to work hard and commit themselves to keeping the law. They had to contribute on some level. They believed that they had to make an effort to please God. And because of this, the idea of being justified in the sight of God without first obeying seemed really foreign and alien to them. In fact, they believed that the gospel of grace was simply a license to sin. They believed that if you didn't keep the law, then you're just prone to just do whatever you want, however you want, and then just call it grace. But Paul makes it clear the law was not given to make a person righteous. In chapter 3, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being is ever going to be justified in the sight of God by keeping the law. The law was given to help us to see how sinful we are and how desperately we need a Savior. The law prepares our hearts for the gospel. It reveals who we are. It helps us to see that Christ earned righteousness for us, the righteousness that we need. It helps us to see that He died to make atonement for our sins. Christ did everything we needed to do but couldn't do. The law makes us righteous. Excuse me. The law doesn't make us righteous with God. It drives us to Christ, who is the only one that can make us righteous before God. And so, truly, salvation comes by faith alone. But the Jews struggled with this, and and they rightly understood that many people would hear this message of grace, and they would just use it as an excuse and a license to just commit sin. Which, by the way, people have done for centuries. People have used the gospel of grace to justify their sin since the church began. They're called antinomians, which is from the Latin word nomos, or the law. And they are those who are anti-nomos, or anti-law. They completely reject the law of God. They're the ones who see the greatness of God's grace, all the while failing to see the importance of walking holy before God. Those who reckon and teach God isn't concerned with our obedience to the law and commands. And we see this tension in the world. On the one hand, you have the legalists who think that there must be some mandatory obedience to the law in order to be saved. Otherwise, you have a license to sin. And on the other hand, you have the antinomians who see the grace as the get-out-of-jail-free card, and any discussion of the law or the call to obey is met with a sharp, sharp rebuke, rebuke of you Pharisee. Right? Any call to examine oneself and to see if they're in the faith, any call to repent, any call to bear fruit in keeping with repentance is shouted down in a chorus of, we're not under the law, we're under grace, you legalistic Pharisee. That's what we see in the world. Those who see some form of legal obedience as necessary for salvation, those who reject any idea or of any expectation of obedience. And, and it is the foundational attitude behind those two perspectives that Paul addresses here. This attitude that the gospel of grace somehow does away with, with the law and God's call for people to walk in holiness. Right? Because if we're saved by grace, then the law doesn't matter. 
And if grace grows as sin grows, then let us sin that grace grows even more. But notice how Paul responds to this objection. He says, by no means. Now, these three words in English do reflect and convey his idea, but they don't fully convey the force of Paul's words here. Because this phrase can be better translated as perish the thought, right? Or may it never be, right? The the fact is Paul's emphasis here on his no cannot be overstated. He is absolutely, what he's saying is absolutely not is what he's saying here, right? Paul is clear saying we should not go on sinning that grace may abound. And brothers and sisters, I want you to, please don't miss this. Paul is explicitly stating we are not to go on sinning. We're not to go on willfully sinning. Sinning. Let that sink into your heart a little bit. Let that thought capture your mind. Because this is not one of the popular truths in American Christianity. I I don't care what we've been told. I don't care what the most popular pastors and theologians on YouTube say. Paul is saying that those who are in Christ do not have a license to sin. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from works of the law. Yes, we are saved by Christ's finished work on the cross and not our efforts, but there is still an expectation that if we are in Christ, we will not go on living a life of sin. There is a gospel expectation that we will begin to grow in obedience to God's commands. There's an expectation that there will be desire in us to grow in personal holiness before God. Just settle that truth in your mind. There is an expectation that those who come to faith in Christ by the grace of God will not live a life defined by willful rebellion. But how is that possible? How is it possible to reject the claims of antinomians and those who profess to be cardinal Christians without being, without becoming a legalistic Pharisee? Because many people, it's an either, for many people, it's an either-or proposition. For many people, that's it's it's you're either a legalist or you're an antinomian, and there is no middle ground. Well, Paul gives us the answer in the rest of this text. He asks one of the most important questions that followers of Christ must grapple with. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? This question is one of the most important questions in the Bible for us to wrap our heads around. How can we, who died, still live in sin? I want you to understand this question is theologically loaded. There is a lot packed in these few words here. And we'll take a few minutes to unpack them. Because does does Paul mean, what does he mean when he asks this question? First of all, what does he mean by we? Who is the we that he's talking about here? Right? And then when did we die to sin? Still alive, right? And and how does this death keep us from living in sin, especially given the fact that we all know that Christians still sin from time to time? It's the truth, right? We all still sin. John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, 9 and 10, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So there is a lot here. And the first question, who is the we that Paul is talking about when he says, we who died to sin? Well, in the context of the rest of this passage, what we discover is we, that the we that Paul's referring to, is those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who believe. Those who have faith. Those who have repented and believed the gospel. That is the we he's talking about. And what you need to realize is, if you're in Christ, then you are part of the we. And if you're not in Christ, then you're not part of the we. Paul's not talking about you. And then, and with that said, then, 
He says, how do we Christians, right? How do we who die to sin still live in it? How is it then that we Christians die to sin? Paul emphatically says that we have died. Because notice when, when he says that we died to sin, that it's past tense. It's as if it already happened. So how do we who died to sin still live in it? How is it possible that we have died? Well, the first thing that we need to understand what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that sin has died. A lot of people kind of confuse that. He says, we are the one who died to sin, but sin is not dead. Sin is still alive and it affects us, even though that we are in Christ. Secondly, and this is the distinction we have to be really careful to understand. Those who die to sin, right, do not live in it. He doesn't say those who die to sin will never commit sins. He's saying that those who die to sin will not live in sin. You see, there's a huge distinction that we need to be aware of with respect to sin. Paul makes a distinction between sinning, the act of sinning, and living in sin. You see, falling into sin at times and committing acts of sin at different points is not the same thing as willfully living in and embracing and being ruled by sin. This is an important distinction that we need to understand as we look at this text. First of all, notice how Paul personifies sin. Paul is speaking of sin as more than simply an act of wrongdoing. He's speaking of it as an agent of evil the agent that drives sinful behavior, the, the agent that influences the lives of people. You know, Paul is talking about the sin that entered the world through Adam, the, the sin that brought the world into bondage, the sin that reigned in death, as Paul had said in chapter 5. He's not talking about an act of where we miss the mark from time to time. You see, what Paul is communicating by implication to his audience is those who live in sin don't just simply sin. They are identified by it. They are controlled by sin. They are enslaved to it. In fact, Paul is going to use the slavery metaphor a little bit later on in this chapter with regards to sin. And so the idea that Paul is communicating here is not simply failing to obey the law. He's talking about a way of life, a life dominated by sin. And so we can ask Paul's question this way, how can we who died to sin still be controlled by it? That's the question. How can we who died to sin still be enslaved to it? How can we who, who died still live under its reign and control? So let's get clear. Paul is not talking about the experience as Christians who are truly born again, who fall into sin from time to time, even egregious sin from time to time. True believers can and will be tempted and will fall in any number of ways in their lives. If you're breathing, you're still prone to sin. As the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith makes clear for us, it says, during this life, the corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all actions arising from it are truly and actually sin. The truth is, Christians will commit sin from time to time. The difference is, they will not be defined by a life of sin. Again, the confession says this, Sanctification, the process of where God is removing sin from our lives, extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war that arises of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you understand this war. And in this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. We may fall into deep sin, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes, so that the saint grows in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in the gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as the head and king has given them in this world. In His word, excuse me. 
So it's clear Paul's not talking about Christians who occasionally fall prey to sin. Paul's talking about those who are enslaved to sin, those who live unrepentantly in sin, those who are controlled by sin. That's the picture that Paul is painting. And Paul is asking if Christians who have died to sin, how is it possible for them for us to live or be controlled or enslaved by that sin? And the answer by implication is it's it's not possible. It's not possible because true Christians who are in Christ, who have died to sin, simply can't continually live in it. They can't live and walk in unrepentant, willful sin. They may sin for a time and maybe even an extended period of time and maybe even commit awful sins. But they will not continually live lives controlled by sin. It's not their nature to do so. Because if they do, if they are willfully enslaved to sin, then they have not actually died to sin. And if they've not died to sin, then they have not been justified by faith, which means they are not in Christ, regardless of whatever confession they may have made in their lives. And again, I know this is not a popular truth, but it's the truth nonetheless. If a person who claims to have faith in Christ consistently lives a life of rebellion to God's law, and their life is defined by unrighteousness towards God's command, we are right to call into question their conversion. We are right to to call them, to examine themselves, to see if they are of the faith. Because they're they're likely not in Christ. And I've told this this story before, but it bears repeating. There There was a Sunday evening, I was actually wrapping up after youth group, and this man whips into the parking lot really fast, kind of crooked, right? And he pulls up his truck to the back uh, entrance of the church, and he gets out of the truck really quickly, leaving the engine running and the door open, exposing the open beer in the console. And he's leaning and he's kneeling on the back steps, and he's bowing his head like he's praying. When people pull in here that I don't know, I always say, hey, how can I help you? And so he began to speak. As he began to speak, I could tell that he, he was drinking. Um, and he said, you know, man, I just, I just need a little Jesus. I'm like, well, what do, you, what, what do you mean you need a little Jesus? He's like, well, you know, I've been messing up a lot lately, and I've just been doing things I know I'm not supposed to be doing. And, you know, I just need to come here and get a little Jesus. I said, you don't need to come here and get a little Jesus. You need to repent and believe the gospel. And this is his response. He says, oh, man, me and Jesus, we're great. Yeah, I, I was led to, to the Lord by Chuck Smith himself, you know, the, 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 the man who started Calvary Chapel, right? And in fact, he even baptized me in the ocean. This man, he was convinced that because he made a profession of faith and that some celebrity pastor is the one who led him to the Lord, that he was in Christ, right? But as we talked, he explained he'd been married and divorced four times as a Christian man, right? And his favorite pastime was drinking to excess and chasing women, right? Because I said, you need to repent of your drunkenness and your illicit sexual relationships. And he says, oh man, I can't do that. I love my beer and I love them women. And I told him, I said, if I were you, I mean, with real concern in my heart, I said, if I were you, I would be concerned. If I were you, I would read the scriptures, right? And I would get real with myself, right? And and ask, am I really of the faith? I mean, you call yourself a Christian, but you're living in open rebellion to God, and you know you are. That's why you're here. You're starting to feel guilty. So you feel you'd come here just to assuage your guilt for a little little while. I said, you need to examine to see see if you're in the faith. People who claim to be of the faith but live lives controlled by sin are likely not in Christ. Now, as a pastor, I don't have the ability to judge a person's hearts. All I can do is take what the Word says and then give give advice based on what it says. And based on what it says, if you're living in unrepentant sin, you need to examine yourself and see if you're really of the faith. Because notice how Paul explains, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
That, by the way, is how we died to sin. That's the answer. How did we die to sin? We were baptized into Christ's death. And he further says in verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, Paul is saying here that we Christians died to sin because in a very real sense, we died with Christ. That's what he's saying. We have died with Christ. And if we've died with Christ, we've also been raised to new life with Him. But how is that possible then? How is it possible for us to die with Christ if we're still physically alive? It's possible because Christ, like Adam, is our covenant representative. He is our federal head. That's the foundation that Paul laid in for us in chapter 5. In Adam, we became dead to God in our sin and trespasses and alive to sin. Remember Ephesians chapter 2. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which once you once in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, notice this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were alive to sin, but dead to God. In Adam, we were dead to God and alive to sin, but in Christ, we were made dead to sin and alive to God. That is the truth that Paul is driving at here. By faith in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. Instead, we become unified to Christ. For we were once unified to Adam, sharing his sin and his sin nature and his death and separation from God. By faith, we are now unified and united with Christ and share in his life, death, and resurrection. This is the doctrine of the union with Christ. By the way, one of the most important doctrines for us to learn. Those who come to faith in Jesus become united to Christ in a very real sense. When we put our faith in Jesus, we become, He becomes our federal head. He becomes our representative before God. And because of that, His atoning work on the cross covers our sin. And His perfect righteousness then becomes our own. And because of that, we are accepted, spotless by the Father. And the Holy Spirit then comes to take up residence in us, leading us and guiding us and changing us from the inside out and guaranteeing our redemption. And it's not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We receive the benefits of what Christ has done because we have been united, unified with Christ by faith. Which, by the way, is exactly what baptism symbolizes. When a person is baptized, he or she enters the water upright, symbolizing their old life, being in sin and dead before God. But then by a profession of faith, they are pushed under the water, symbolizing their death to sin and their burial with Christ. And they are lifted out of the water, symbolizing being raised with Christ to new life. That's what baptism symbolizes. Our union with Christ. We are united by faith to Christ. Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality. That in a very real sense, when we put our faith in Christ, we are justified because we have become united with Christ in His death to sin. His death in payment for our sins is credited to us. And our sins become, because of our union with Christ, are washed away by His atoning blood. And then as Paul says, this is so in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness in life. That's what baptism symbolizes, our union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which, by the way, is why we as Baptists insist on full immersion baptism. That a person goes all the way under water because Baptism isn't a ceremony where your sins are actually washed away. Your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. Baptism is a rehearsal of the gospel. It is 
It is a symbol that we have been united with Christ by faith. And in this union, in a very real sense, we have died to sin. And because of that, it's no longer our master. We no longer then live in it. And so Paul says we are united with Christ's death and burial, and we're united with Christ's, Christ in his resurrection. We are united to Christ in the new life. By faith in him, we have union with Christ. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung has this to say about the union of Christ. He says, the union isn't physical, it's theological. The union with Christ implies three things. Solidarity, Christ as the second Adam is our representative. Transformation, Christ by the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. And communion, Christ abides with us as our God. By faith, we are removed from Adam and the union we shared with him, and the curse that we had under him. And by faith, we are placed in Christ and united with him. And we are united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is the basis of Paul's answer for this objection about sin. Are we to go on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not! Why? Because those who have been justified by faith in Christ have been radically transformed. That's what Paul is saying. Because of our union with Christ, we have been radically transformed. We have a new nature. We have a new identity. We have a new federal head. We have a brand new life in Christ. In Christ, we have died with Him. We have been buried with Him. Our old nature is gone, and we have been raised to a brand new life. As Paul says, if you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has what? Passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have been radically transformed, which reflects the radical nature of Christ's words in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, everybody wants to just think about verse 16, but they miss the context that builds up to that, where Jesus says, truly, truly, they say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, recognizing the, the staggering nature of that statement, asked, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly I, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water, natural birth, and the spirit, rebirth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Being born again is not simply just a profession of faith. It is a radical transformation in your nature. You are in Christ a new creature. And what Paul is communicating is those who are united with Christ have been radically transformed. And so what he's asking in this text is, how can one, we who have been so radically changed, how can we who have by faith, died to sin with Christ and made alive with Him, how can we continue? If that really is true of us, how can we continue to live under the control of sin? How can we live lives identified and mastered by sin if God has done such an amazing work in us? That's the question that Paul's asking. How is it possible for those who have been radically transformed by the power of God, who have been set free from the bondage of sin, still live in open rebellion to God? And the answer, by implication, is that it's simply impossible. It's impossible. Because those who've been united with Christ by faith are new creatures with a new nature. And though we may occasionally fall into sin, we will not live lives that are enslaved by sin. That's Paul's point. That's the answer to the objection. Are we to sin so that grapes may abound? Absolutely not. Because those who are in Christ have been radically changed and can't live under sin's reign. So then how does this solve the legalism, antinomianism uh, dilemma? Actually, it's pretty simple. You were saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, which that's three of the medallions that are up there, by the way. I don't know if you know that, right? 
You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from anything that you can do. We are not saved by our works or obedience to the law. We are saved by faith in Christ and his atoning work. End of story. We are justified by faith. That's the point that Paul's been making from the very beginning. However, salvation is the work of God where he has radically transformed us in nature and united us with Christ. And as the byproduct of that, we will begin to love the God that we once hated and we'll begin to hate the sin that we once loved. Since our hearts have been radically transformed, we will begin to desire to walk in holiness. We'll be, we will want to walk in obedience to God's command. We will begin to see the beauty of God's law and we will desire to then obey it, not to be saved, but because we already are saved. Not to mention, we've been given the Holy Spirit that's the promise, the helper to lead us, to guide us, to convict us of our sin. You see, obedience to God law, God's law is not the root of our salvation. It is the fruit of our salvation. It's the natural byproduct of the, na the radical change that God has worked in, our, in the lives of every believer. If you're in Christ, though you may sin, there will be a pattern in your life where you'll desire to be holy. There'll be a pattern in your life where, where sin will grieve you. You'll fall into sin, but it will grieve you. There'll be a pattern in your life where you will pray, Lord, change my heart. So shall we sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Does grace mean we have a license to sin? Not at all. Does that mean obedience to the law is required for salvation? Not even close. We are saved by grace through faith, and the result is we are united to Christ and are radically transformed where we will grow in a desire to be obedient to the commands of God, the God that we absolutely love and adore. So then what do we do with this? How do we live in light of this, this truth? Because I'm going to tell you, there has been many points in my life where I've wrestled with this. And where I tend to fall off on this is the point of legalism. Where I begin to look at my life and I see where I've failed or fallen down. And I begin to think, I need to work harder, I need to try harder, I need to do more, you know. And then I listen to Paul Washer's sermon on the spiritual penalty box where we have this tendency to, when we fall into sin, to go punish ourselves and separate ourselves from God. And what I realized is when I find I'm in those moments and I'm grieved for my sin, I need to remind myself of the gospel. I need to turn to Christ and hold on to Him. So, so what do we do with this? Well, if you're not in Christ, if you have not come to faith in Christ, then you need today to repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your sin and turn to, to Christ by faith and trust in Him alone. And the promise is that he will, not, he will not let you be put to shame. That He will rescue you and save you from your sin and the consequences of your sin. Now, if you are of the faith, there are, th there are three things I want to offer to you today. The first one is that we ought to continually rest in the gospel. This is one of the hardest lessons for me to learn. It took me a long time to get to that place, to rest in the gospel, knowing that if I'm in Christ, I'm secure in his hands. All right? And even though I might stumble, Christ has promised to not let me go. So we need to rest in the gospel. When we find ourselves grieved by our sin, we look heavenward and we hold on to him, trusting in him, resting in his finished work. The second thing is we need to continually abide in Christ. We don't need to write down a list of rules. You better do this and better. No, we just need to abide in Christ. We need to stay close to him. He is our, our savior. He is the one who makes provision for us. It is, it is by grace that he supplies us. We need to abide in him as Jesus says, in John 15, abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we abide in Christ? By hearing his voice and being in the word. You want assurance that you belong to him? Come back to the source. Right? Worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear the gospel and the songs that we sing. Love on one another. Seeing Christ's love. Right. Third thing is pray. Pray continually. The prayer of my heart continually is, Lord, change my heart. Right. When I bump my head into an area where I had know that I'm struggling with, right. I know the answer is not, Sherman, you just need to just... Grit your teeth and work harder because that works for a little bit of time. But God's not after change in my behavior. He's after the root, a change in my heart. And I can't change my own heart. And so our prayer ought to be, Lord, change my heart. Help me to walk in obedience. Help me to be pleasing in your sight. I know that I'm safe. I know Right? that I'm your child. I know you won't reject me, but I want to be pleasing to you. Help me to walk in obedience. Help me to be holy. That's how we apply this to our lives. Because if you're in Christ, you have died to sin and are alive to God. What a glorious truth for us to live in. And what a hope that we have to share with the world. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.